Hey everybody, I'm Lori Rudiman. Welcome to Corporate Drinker, a punk rock HR production. In each episode, Corporate Drinker explores the intricate ties between work culture and alcohol. Now there's no judgment here. The podcast tells stories of regular people like you and me who may have complicated relationships with drinking. I'll talk to leadership gurus, therapists, addiction specialists, and even HR and marketing professionals who have hot takes on how and why alcohol and work have become so interconnected. And of course, I'll speak to brilliant people with big ideas on cultivating genuine cultures of inclusion and belonging so leaders and employees can enhance their work environment and reduce unnecessary conflict with or without alcohol. On today's episode, I'm chatting with Daniel Chait. He's the CEO and co-founder of Greenhouse. They're a recruitment technology company. And in fact, on LinkedIn, they say they're the fastest growing enterprise talent acquisition suite. But we're not here to talk about recruiting or onboarding or diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging, which are in the wheelhouse of Greenhouse. Instead, Dan is on the show today to tell me a story about a mistake he made with alcohol and what he learned from it. So if you're interested in a CEO talking candidly about what it's like to lead when there's alcohol present, we'll sit back and enjoy this conversation with Daniel Chait of Greenhouse. Hey, Daniel, welcome to the show. Hey, great to be here. Yeah, I'm so pleased you said yes to what is a random discussion about building culture and leadership and drinking. And before we get started, why don't you tell everybody who you are and what you do for a living? Yeah, absolutely. I'm Daniel Chait. I'm the co-founder and CEO at Greenhouse Software. Uh, for those who may not know, Greenhouse is a hiring software company. So we make products that companies use to help improve how they hire. Um, and so issues of talent, hiring, culture, leadership, like how people are within organizations, they're very near and dear to my heart. Um, I live in New York City. I grew up in uh, Michigan. And um, I've been an entrepreneur for over 25 years. So yeah. great to be here. Yeah. Looking to dig in. Yeah. Well, you've seen uh, the world of work now for almost three decades. You know, same thing with me. How did we get so old? I want to know how that happened. One but day I at just, a time. Yeah, for sure. For sure. I guess we're lucky. I, I want to know what it's like to be a CEO today versus five years ago versus 10 years ago. Like what what's the difference these days? You know, I think there's been a really... A persistent trend, certainly during the course of my career, of employees being more empowered, more um, in sort of self-actualizing and kind of independent from corporations. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of things that have caused that. Like, um, you know, in my my dad basically had one job his whole his whole career and then retired. Yep. A generation ago, you had you know that promise that you'd show up at the at the corporate plant and work your career and get your gold watch and have a pension, but that that went away. Yeah. And and so in this new era, you know, com- people are like a lot more on their own, but also a lot more empowered. You know, there was no Glassdoor, there was no LinkedIn, there was no easy ability to apply for a hundred jobs with a you know click of a button. And so the you know people today feel correctly, I think, that they have a lot more freedom and a lot more control over their own journey. And then of course, with the move in the last few years to increased amount of online and remote work, they now have access to millions and millions of more jobs in lots more locations and industries than they ever had in their local neighborhood. Hmm. And so 
that's the context in which I'm thinking about your question. And as a leader, whether it's a CEO or any leader, you need to realize that your company literally wakes up every single day with a choice to participate in your company or not. And you have to own up to that. You have to give them a reason to stay and continue to build their career at, their, at, at your company or else they'll just easily go on to something else. And so, you know, some leaders bemoan that and they, oh my gosh, in my day, people did what they were told and didn't ask so many yeah. damn questions. And right, right. You know, there's a little bit <laughs> that I think people people say, but but to me, uh, it just puts the relationship on like a little bit more of even footing where you're going to come contribute to this company. We're going to support your goals and careers and we're all aligned on a mission. And if you get your head around that, it can be really powerful. Yeah. I mean, I like what you're saying and I think it's true in several companies, many companies even, but I think, you know, the promise of COVID allowed for more agency among the workforce, right? Allowed for possibly more choices. And we saw some companies swing that way. But now as we emerge in this post-pandemic environment, the pendulum is swinging the other way. And there are CEOs who are bravely or insanely saying, you don't like it here, leave. What do you what do you think? Are workers leaving? Are they flooding out of those jobs? Or are they holding on to them with their cold, dead hands, right? Because they need the money. You know, well, first of all, it's not one labor market. There's a bunch of labor markets, and I think the dynamics are a little bit different in kind of the you know hourly. If you're if you're if you're a shift worker at a, at a, at, a, at a factory, or if you're working in in hospitality, versus if you're a programmer or a salesperson at a software company, the dynamics are super. I, I think though that there is a lot of wishful thinking that you hear out of CEOs and private equity types and bankers and you know folks like that who who are saying like, okay, all that, all that fluff about work from home and diversity and equity, like that was all, you know, that's all in the past. And like, everyone just like show up and do what they're told. And we're going to go back to the way it was. And like, I don't think that's as, I don't think that's, that's true at all. Um, And I think what you're seeing is a lot of companies trying to say that, but having to hedge. So they know if they said, well, look, I mean, take my company. If I said greenhouse is going back to work five days a week, well, I wouldn't really have a company because of our 800 odd employees. Almost all of them don't live anywhere near an office that we have. Mm. It's gone. Yeah. It's just, we, our company is distributed. And, you know, look at other companies, they, they may not have had as much a commitment to, to being distributed, but still people have arranged their lives. They have childcare arrangements. They have commuting arrangements, they've moved to a different, you know, location that's further away from, from the office and, and to upend their life just because it's something you, you want to see happen is, is just not realistic. And, yeah. and so I think you see this tension where companies are trying to get people back to the office because they feel it's better or easier to manage or whatever they feel, but they're not actually able to commit to it because it doesn't work for the people for the most part. Yeah, that makes sense. You know, I was thinking about how many CEOs also don't have the skills to work within a distributed framework. I mean, that's that wasn't taught at Harvard, right? 15 years ago when they took that one executive MBA course, right? So you've got a bunch of CEOs who don't have that skill set, but even CEOs who are empathetic and compassionate and kind can make mistakes, right? And I'm thinking about a story that you have about speaking to your global workforce and announcing some good news and celebrating. Well, well, you, t- you tell me that story. I will tell you the story, but first I'll say, I wasn't, I wasn't led into Harvard. Um, <laughs> I don't have yeah, you and me special, both. 
I don't have any special claim on being, you know, a genius or, or especially empathetic. And like, I can tell you, it is really, it is really hard. And just because those are the facts that we have to be beholden to an employee base that wants certain things, it doesn't mean it's easy to do. And it doesn't mean that because work has moved online, that there's like, it's easy to figure out. In fact, a lot of this has never been done before. So we're all figuring it out. So that's part of why these conversations are interesting. But the story you're telling, I think is, is emblematic in a certain way. So what had happened was um, we had opened our office at Greenhouse in in just in the beginning of 2020. And we had planned in like March 18th or 20th thereabouts, and the date matters when you hear when it was, of 2020, that we were going to go, me and a, a few of the other leaders, to Ireland and do a big fanfare to open our office. And obviously, knowing the date now, you know that trip never happened. Right. So travel was shut down and and, and quarantine was established. And we had to cancel the trip, but we didn't want to, we didn't want to totally shut down the opening of the office fanfare. Mm -hmm. And so we continued with our all hands meeting, but I was just going to deliver it from New York city. And in order to be a little bit kind of tongue in cheek and a little bit still celebratory, I changed my like zoom virtual background to a picture of Dublin. Yeah. And I joined, I said, I'm in Dublin, but obviously everyone could tell it wasn't, it was kind of tongue in cheek. It was kind of funny. And then I had gone to the local pub and actually bought a can of Guinness, and and I and I, and I bought from the bartender a glass with the Guinness logo on it, and and so I, I cracked it open and I poured the I poured the beer, and I took a sip, and people thought it was hilarious. Although side note, the Dublin office definitely raked me over the coals for not pouring the Guinness correctly, which is not really a point of the story, but was kind no of no funny no. Anyway. But there is a method to um, that, absolutely. Yeah. There's a method to that. I did not know the method, but the serious point, uh, Laurie, is that. I didn't realize at the time how that experience would be received by lots of our employees, particularly the ones who have struggled with alcohol or substance um, issues in their lives. And fortunately for me, one of those employees reached out to me afterwards and said, hey, look, I'm not sure if you know this or if you were aware, but that was a really troubling moment for me. I'm sitting here at work. I'm on an all hands where the CEO is going to give a presentation and with no warning. And by the way, at like eight o'clock in the morning, he cracks open a beer and takes a chug of it in front of me. And like, that was really hard. Wow. What a a moment for me, because um, it just wasn't obviously anything that I had, uh, you know, um, intended, but the impact on, on, on this person and and those around them was extremely clear. And, uh, and I felt terrible. Yeah. You know, I'm fascinated by the story because um, we were all just learning how to work remotely, right? And and certainly it's very difficult to satisfy all audiences, but I'm really impressed by the bravery of one of your employees to come and speak to you like that. So can you speak to that? I mean, what systems did, did you have in place? What uh, culture did you have that empowered someone who does not report to the CEO and may not have the same career uh what's the word I'm looking for? You know, same, uh, security, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a very brave thing to do. Absolutely. And and I'll, I'll talk about the things that we've done, I think to support that, but I think it starts with what you're saying, which is like, it was truly very brave and exceptional of this person to come to me with this. They didn't know how I would receive it. And, you know, you're giving, um, uncomfortable feedback about an uncomfortable topic to someone at the top of the food chain. Like, I was not, I did not at all take that for granted. And my very first response before we got into the details of it was like, thank you so much. I really appreciate this. Can't have been easy for you to say. And, and, and I, and I, and I was very grateful for that person because it allowed me to do something about it. I mean, I'm, yeah. I'm like, there's a lot of things I miss. This was something I missed. And in the subsequent all hands 
took 15 seconds. At the beginning, I said, hey, just wanted to mention that the last all hands, I did this thing. I was trying to be lighthearted about it, but I didn't realize the impact it would have on certain people. I apologize, which is nice for the people to hear the apology. Sure. But I think your other question about like, what do we do to support that? It showed the rest of the company. It's okay. <laughs> it's okay to apologize when you do something wrong. And it's, it's okay to give feedback when you see something you don't like, you know, people are going to accept it and, and, and engage with it and deal with it. You're not going to get in trouble. And so there's a very important example setting role that, that a leader has that really, that really matters. Um, and so how you are in those moments where people take you seriously and say, Hey, like we value belonging at greenhouse. Well, okay. So here's a way in which I was not able to fully belong in this culture. Like you got to take yeah. that seriously. If you don't, it just becomes words on on a wall and, and and all the rest of your credibility gets called into question. For sure. I think that's one of the modern criticisms of a mechanism that companies have to create a sense of belonging, which are employee resource groups. A lot of times they're employee resource groups in names in name only. But when push comes to shove and there's an issue that emerges, that group may voice a concern to the top and the top doesn't respond. And so can you talk okay. to me about the role of ERGs in your organization? And did that play a role in the confidence of this worker to come forward? Yeah, I think in that case, they had had the discussion within within one of the ERGs to, to discuss, hey, was this something others were feeling? And is this something we feel is important to raise for sure? But yeah, I think... You know, there's this kind of ambiguous role for ERGs and frankly for HR overall that if you're not clear, can go sideways where who are they really here for and what are they really doing? I remember when we first started, um, I forget forget what we called it at the time, but it was effectively a diversity uh, employee group supporting diversity, right? And of course, they were very um, proud to be uh, participating in this group, and they they wanted to have a lot of impact. And they wrote their mission statement for the group, and they said, you know, the purpose of this group is to ensure diversity at Greenhouse. And I pushed back a little bit on that. I said, you know, I appreciate the ambition, but I don't think like a group of 12, you know, well-meaning employees from around the company can ensure diversity at Greenhouse. I think that's something that we have to do as a company, that leadership has to do, that the HR team has to support. That all of us have to have to you know make happen every day for years. Yeah, and, and so it was a kind of a clarifying conversation. Like, well, what are we here to really do? And and we've I, again, I don't have a monopoly on the truth or or the right way to do it. We've reworked these things over the years a number of different times. What's the right amount of structure, and how can they participate? But you know, for us, they start with you know that sense of belonging that I talked about earlier. It works in two different ways. One is you belong to the whole, like. You should belong at Greenhouse. Yeah. And and Greenhouse is the organization for that. <laughs> but the other is that there's other people here like me that have similar issues that I can relate to, that I can talk to about those, that can empathize in certain ways. And so that's where our, we call them arbors, um, that's where our arbors come in. And they have the ability to show up in a place where you can kind of be a little bit more sure that the folks in that group understand what you're dealing with and understand some of the issues that that others may not. And then how do they work? We put on programming, we bring in speakers, yeah. um, we share topics in areas where um, there's a relevant issue to that group. We will partner with our arbors. So if there is um, a societal issue, be it a, a, you know, a divisive political event, um, some tragedy that happens, something positive that happens, like we'll work with our arbors on things like, Pride Parade uh, participation, like we worked with Rainbow House, which is our LGBTQ plus um, arbor, 
we work with Black House on issues related to that community. And like that, they are a resource for the company yeah. as well as being a resource for employees in that way. So, well, I like that a lot. And you know, I'm thinking about how ERGs can be your secret weapon to building that, you know, passionate, thriving culture where people rally around a mission to solve problems for the customers, but also grow individually uh, and perform at a higher level, right? I think there's a fear of ERGs in many organizations, almost as if there was a fear of unions 15 or 20 years ago. And I wonder um, mm -hmm. if you've seen that at all in clients and customers, or just, you know, as a general statement about culture, that people think they get the ERG that they deserve, and they, and they often do, funny enough, but there's a real hesitancy to embrace that as a, I think, a tool to grow the organization. Do you have any thoughts on that? So I mentioned earlier that I've been an entrepreneur for uh, you know almost twenty five years, and yeah. if things that sounded like a brag, it was more of a it was more of a um, <laughs> it was more of a warning. I've almost basically almost only ever worked for myself. Yeah. So I don't have a lot of internal experience at other organizations. Sure. I can tell you, for us, it was not easy to see how those groups ought to work. Like like we talked about, like what is really their purpose? Yeah. And look, I think of myself as a good person. I want people to be happy and all the rest of it, but it's genuinely not clear what are the right structures and what are the right ways that people should work. Something as simple, for example, as, um, you know, those things take effort, right? Yeah, you run an ERG, it's going to do stuff. They need someone needs to run the meetings and have agendas and do programming. It's a bunch of stuff. And if you have a job and someone else has a job and you belong to an ERG and they don't, you're doing more work. Yeah, you are. Yeah. Um, and so we worked through some of that. And, and ultimately, we decided that we were going to pay our harbor leaders a stipend in recognition of the of the work that it takes to get it done, because then it's a real it, it's a real job. Absolutely. And we had to make the decision, like, is this a real job or not? Because if it's not a real job, then the whole thing is kind of just like, what are we doing? But like, yeah. no, no, this is a real job. You can support. You should put in time, therefore, into it. Mm -hmm. And you should be held accountable for a, a standard of of, of, you know, excellence and, um, and all the things that come along with that. And I think people feel a real sense of pride that when they get their leadership role in an arbor, it comes along with, you know, some additional, additional reward. Yeah. Um, I like that. I like that a lot. Yeah. Well, I think about how we're all starting to come together either, um, physically in locations, right. Or just through, uh, all hands meetings, events, conferences. And I know one of the things that's kind of special about Greenhouse is you create the sense of belonging whenever you gather. And it's not oriented around alcohol. Like I've seen this in your culture. There may be alcohol that's served or not, but you're very thoughtful about this approach. You were thoughtful before the Dublin incident, right? And you continue to be thoughtful today. So can you talk a little bit about the role of alcohol at greenhouse and I don't know your take on that and the appropriateness of it. Yes. And, and, and I would say, try, I say try to be, because as I told with the story, like we don't always get it right. Oh, right. And um, you know, there's, you know, there's uh, none of us are perfect, but I'm thinking back. We had, we had um, someone speak at one of our all hands very early on in the company. I think we were probably a hundred or fewer employees total. And, you know, she stood up at the all hands to tell a story and I didn't know. And I don't think any, most people didn't really know what she was there to say. And she told the story about how she is a recovering alcoholic mm. and what the sense of belonging at Greenhouse meant to her was embodied in a story she told where her team said, Hey, let's get together. And they wanted to socialize and all positive things. Let's go have a happy hour. 
And she had said, well, you know, that's really difficult for me. And the team accommodated and they went and did something else. And they had a great time. And the sense that she felt comfortable saying that to the team and then later to the whole company mm-hmm. um, and, and, and how that um, was received and what that meant was a lesson that I'll never forget because in order to create the environment where someone can, can, can do their best work, you have to be recognizing what it feels like for the most vulnerable people in the organization. Yeah. Right? Um, those who are those who are, are are less vulnerable, they'll be fine. Yeah. But for people who feel marginalized, and that can take a lot of different forms. It can be race. It can be ethnic. It can be gender. It can be a, a you know a different ability. It can be all mm-hmm. kinds of things. You don't speak the right language. Everyone's in uh, a room together, and you're on Zoom. Like there's so many ways in which people have different kinds of platforms. Yeah. If you're not more conscious of those things, you're just going to end up disempowering people and ultimately missing out on great talent. And that's what it's all about at the end of the day. So look, I don't think we always get it right. I know we have events where people wish that there was less uh, alcohol being served. And as someone, again, I mean, this is just, a, you know, a, a one more way in which I'm a strange person because I, because I've always been my own boss. Like I don't really make friends at work in the same way that most people do. Yeah. You know, I think most people, they've got their work buddies and like, I've never really had work buddies. I've had a co-founder and employees and right. I get along well with a lot of my employees, but it's different. Right. And so yeah. also don't quite have a lot of that. I, I need to rely on other people to sort of help set up. What are these, what are these even social events there to do and how do we do them? And, and what do people want? That's really interesting because I think having worked for myself for now, almost 20 years, I'm kind of in the same boat. Like I have real friends and I have friends that I met through work and then we no longer talk about work because we're true friends. Right. You know, and, and then I have colleagues. And so I, and also I have my cynicism that work is for suckers. You know that about me. So it's like, I don't want to be friends. There's a reason they pay you to do it, you know? Right, right, right. How can I, you know, get to know them and also take a paycheck? It makes no sense. So I, I think I'm wired a little differently, but so many people really want to feel community, want to feel a sense of belonging at work. And I have done people around me a disservice when I make fun of that, but that's a real valid way to operate in the world. Don't you think? Yes, you and I are the weird ones, I think. I think <laughs> for it's sure, extremely for sure. normal and totally understandable that like you spend a bunch of time at work with a bunch of other people that presumably are smart and yeah. uh, share with you and you should make friends. Like it, it makes total sense. It's just not an experience that I've had. And so I only raise that to say, look, as much as we talk about, you know, the the potential pitfalls, happy hours are fun. Happy There's hours a, are fun, people, yes. People like to go out together. They have a few chicken wings and a beer. It's like, I get it. It's a thing. It's just not for everyone. Mm-hmm. And so if you're going to be a place where everyone can belong, you have to bear in mind that like for everyone, that may not be that it may not be right. And it goes the same to make sure that you have a place that all your employees can get into. Mm-hmm. So if you have an employee in a wheelchair, don't have a social event that you have to go up the stairs to get into. Right. It's it's no different. And I think if you bear those things in mind and, you know, you're, you're right more often than you're wrong. And, you know, you, and then you can really see past those as challenges and really look at like, well, there's a lot of great opportunities to get people together and, and do things that are a little bit more creative, a little bit more interesting, a little bit more real, you know, anyone can, anyone can bring, you know, bring you down to the pub. Um, you know, it's, it, you know, you can get, you know, you can think outside the box with a little bit of constraints. You can get somewhere more interesting. 
That's right. Um, somebody described it as the ability to get people up and moving and connected in whatever way that means, but to get them oriented around getting to know one another and working better instead of orienting around doing shots. And I like that, you know, I like that thought. So I'm so appreciative that you took some time out of your schedule to talk about work drinking and culture. I would be remiss if I didn't ask you if you had any messy stories of your own about drinking at work or messy stories that you've seen, or if you don't even want to go there. Well, I'll say this. I mean, for again, like for myself, you know, I, sure. you know, I don't, I'm, first of all, I'm kind of old and fuddy duddy. So like, I don't, I don't yeah. really go, you know, too hard in any context. <laughs> Wait, I don't think you ever went too hard, my friend. I never went too hard no. to begin with. I couldn't, I can't even really fake it. But also like, I'm pretty conscious that like when I'm at work, I'm the boss and it's pretty good. Yeah. If I show up thing, I raise a glass, I toast, like, and then get, you know, nobody really wants me hanging around. Until close <laughs> So that works for both of us, just to be clear. <laughs> That's generally my attitude, and I think it served me well. But look, I we used to have back when the company was in person, we used to have a big end of year, you know, holiday party. Yeah. Um, and without fail, every year we would give the same talk. Like, look, someone's going to be a jerk at this holiday party. Don't have it be you. And mm. invariably, excuse me. And invariably, somebody would be a jerk at the holiday party. Yeah. And they were, they were. It was always bad, and it always involved someone drinking too much, using bad yeah. judgment. And doing something that got them in a bunch of trouble, up to and including being fired. And the one thing I can tell you is that we don't mess around when it comes to that. Like, look, I told you what the expectation is. Yeah. You didn't follow the expectation. Well, um, welcome there to have been times where we have there in times where we haven't set the expectation. I will say this, like as a learning, when people have exceeded those boundaries, the accountability is much harder. And yeah. um, and so I think one lesson I've 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 I keep trying to learn is remember to set those expectations up front. If you think you don't want people to drink to excess, if you think it's important that, you know, leaders act, as I mentioned, like you need to say those things because everyone doesn't assume it. And, and I'm, I'm, I keep learning that lesson, even, 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 even now. Well, thanks for coming on and telling your stories and really giving us some insight on work, drinking, culture, and leadership. We'll make sure we have all of your good stuff in the show notes so people can reach out and say hi. Thank you so much. I look forward to seeing you again sometimes. Maybe in real life, we'll have a mocktail together. I love it. Let's do it. I mean, I'll, I'll have a glass of champagne. You can have mocktails. <laughs> <laughs> I'll have a half of one and then I'll, I'll peace out. How's that? There you go. That's perfect. The Corporate Drinker Podcast is a special series brought to you by Punk Rock HR. If you like what you heard, head on over to your favorite streaming platform and leave a five-star rating and a review. You can also head on over to punkrockhr.com for news, information, show notes, and all the good stuff related to Corporate Drinker. This episode was expertly produced and edited by my friends at Emerald City Productions with special help from Danny and Michael. That's it for today's show. Thank you for joining us. We'll catch you next time on the Corporate Drinker Podcast.